go. Good morning. Uh, you guys should be on 92.5, uh, just for kicks and giggles. If you can hear us well, can you beep your horn for us? All right. Well, good to see everybody this morning. Also, we're on Facebook Live this morning, and so those of you who are joining us at home, if you could give us a thumbs up or a like just to make sure you guys have good audio and video quality. Uh, we'll have somebody checking that today, so if you have a question or something's not working properly, please just chime in the chat box, and we'll fix that for you. So, uh, I, you know, this time has been kind of a trying time. It's been very interesting times, uh, and one thing that I have enjoyed through this process is figuring out how to do things like this. And so the logistics behind this and the technology behind this to do it has been a challenge, but this is pretty neat that we're outside of this big building that we usually meet in. Uh, it's just good to see the church do something different and the church be outside of the building. And uh, it's just really neat. So I want to read you some scripture this morning uh, from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. And so this morning, being Palm Sunday, we're going to kind of think about that this week as Christ, he makes his entrance into what is going to be his death later on on Friday. And uh, we have a cross over here to my left and your right. It's draped in black this morning uh, to represent the death of Christ. And that's what our sermon is going to be about this morning, about the cross. And so uh, if you will, uh, crank your radios up. We're going to sing along, and you guys sing along with us.
to scriptures in Proverbs 3, 25, 26. Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence. Church, this morning, the Lord is our confidence. He's our hope of every day. Isaiah 41, 10 says this. I hope you will write this down and hold on to it this week and weeks to come. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's pray together. Father, help us not to fear, but trust you in faith. Lord, we face uncertain days, but Father, with you, we can have confidence when terror comes, when uncertainty is, comes our way. Father, you're our confidence. You're our hope. You're our comforter. You're our peace. And, Father, we thank you this morning that you're with us. And, Father, help us not to be dismayed, for you are our God. 
And, Father, you live within us. You're our strength, and you give us hope for every day. And, Father, I want to pray for the church this morning, your people. Lord, I pray you'd help us to turn to you and trust you in these uncertain days, to know that, Father, that you're in control of all things. And, Father, we trust you. And, Father, we come to you. We come to your word. And, Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We come and pray, Father, for the help of our nation. We pray for the healing of our nation, for the healing of your church. I pray you'd awaken your church as never before. And, Lord, use us in these last days for your honor and for your glory, for the fulfillment of the gospel to go forth, or that people might hear about Jesus, and, Father, people might be prepared for eternity. And, Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for being our confidence. Thank you for being our hope. Thank you for being our protector, our provider, our strength. And, Father, we love you this morning. We thank you for loving us. I pray you'd raise up your church, Lord, just in prayer, to pray one for another, to love one another, and to reach out to a world that needs to know you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Hid behind the childhood lies Everything has changed since the blood Since the blood Since the blood Oh, the blood Helpless fallen from the air Reach in, but nobody's there. Screaming quiet, no one cares. I might as well have died, but the blood. Falling on us, but the blood. It gave me purpose, but the blood. It says you're for us, oh, the blood. Who can be against us, but the blood. The blood. It gave me purpose, but the blood. It says you're for us. Oh, the blood. Who can be against us? Oh, the cleansing power that takes the guilt away. The Lamb was sacrificed. Now we no longer fear the grave. No more condemnation, the debt of man is paid by the blood, but for the blood, oh, the cleansing power that takes the guilt away, the Lamb was sacrificed, now we no longer fear the grave. No more condemnation, the debt of man is paid by the blood, but for the blood. No more condemnation, the debt of man is paid by the blood. 
the blood, but for the blood. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus washes me. Oh, the blood of Jesus shed for me. What a sacrifice that saved my life. Yes, the blood is my victory.
Well, good morning from your crippled preacher. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 27. This morning we're going to be talking about the cross. I think Billy Graham said if there was one message that he could preach, and one message only, he would preach about the cross. Verse 27 says this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. So think about this. Jesus is literally an army barracks, if you can imagine what, it, what people said to him when they stripped him of his clothes and put a robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified, is the word. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him. There's the word again. And divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. and the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened up, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into this holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you in prayer, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of the cross. Father, I pray that we would never take the cross for granted. Father, next week we'll celebrate the fact that you rose from the dead. But Father, this week we look at the cross. And to think that someone died in my place for my salvation. Sometimes, Father, it's more than I can take. So Father, I pray that we would have a sense of reverence and awe and worship today as we study your word and learn about the cross in Jesus' name I pray, amen. It's hard for me to think about Jesus without thinking about the cross. Oswald Chambers said this, and I think he's so true. 
He says, all of heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All of hell is terribly afraid of it, while men are the only beings who are more or less ignore its meaning. When you think about symbols, every religion, nation, or social movement has its symbol, in which these symbols attempt to capture the essence of their ideology, philosophy, and the foundation of what defines it. For example, Buddhism has a lotus flower. Modern Judaism has a star of David. Islam uses the crescent and a star which originally depicted the phase of the moon. The Soviet Union has the infamous hammer and sickle. Symbols have emotional power and meaning because they represent something beyond what's simply seen. A symbol is a window to a larger message and more significant and a more significant meaning. The symbol of Christianity is the cross. But when you think about the cross, it's not an attractive symbol. In fact, it was a terrifying symbol of torture and judgment. It's no wonder Paul said this. Paul says the message about the cross is foolishness to the Gentiles and an offense to the Jews. But Paul also talked about the importance of preaching the cross. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, he says this, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Think about that. The greatest theologian who ever lived, a man who had the equivalent of two PhDs by the time he was 21, tells Corinth, if you don't hear anything else, understand that Jesus Christ was crucified. Paul was saying that in all of his teaching, in all of his preaching, in all of his missionary activity, the central point of importance was the cross. Because it was on the cross, through the cross, and by the cross, that our Savior performed his work of redemption. And this event that we just read about is a historical fact. It did not happen by accident. The Old Testament prophesied it. Jesus predicted it. As a matter of fact, in John 3, Jesus said this. He looks back to the Old Testament. And he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We just read where they offered Jesus wine mixed with gall. This was prophesied in Psalm 69, 21. We read about the dividing of garments. This was prophesied in Psalm 22:18. It is no surprise that Jesus was crucified with criminals. We read about the two thieves. Isaiah 53, 12, and that great section of Scripture says he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. It is the same thing that Peter used 50 days after the crucifixion when he spoke to the children of Israel. Peter says, you did it, but it was God's plan. God is sovereign over all these things. So every time you see a cross, you can understand that God is in charge and that God loves you. No one loves you like Jesus loves you. So when I think about the cross in this section of Scripture, I think about this. The first thing, and if you'll notice in your outline, the cross was a place of suffering. Notice how Matthew puts it. Verse 35, he basically says this, and then they crucified him. Verse 38, and then they crucified them, and just left it at that because they understood crucifixion so well. The historian Josephus called crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. The philosopher Cicero in those days said it is altogether shameful that good Romans or Greeks should ever mention the cross. It is not fit for good, decent people to make mention of it. The word used to describe the crucifixion is the word excruciating, which means out of the cross. This was a word invented to describe the pain and horror of the crucifixion. Very rarely would families even use in that day the word excruciating. One scholar put it this way, crucifixion was the most cruelest method of execution 
that has ever been devised. Central to its cruelty was the fact that crucifixion delayed death, allowing for the victim to suffer with great agony. The victim's hands were nailed to the horizontal beam and a large spike was driven through, through the feet as they were placed on top of each other. From this position, breathing was very difficult and was only accomplished by pushing up on the spike to gain a breath. It often took more than a day for the crucified person to die. However, the goal was not just execution. Crucifixion was a political tool meant to terrorize people. So the execution was public, prolonged, and humiliating. The prisoner was stripped naked and hung in a high-traffic area. Jesus physically suffered on the cross like few ever have. But not only that, and more importantly, Jesus suffered spiritually. The Bible says this, He bore our sins on Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.22 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.24 He, talking about Jesus Himself, bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. The cross is a picture of propitiation. Propitiation means this, turning away the outpouring of God's wrath. It's mentioned over 600 times in the Bible. God had to be uh, appeased and there had to be propitiation. That's why when Jesus was in the garden, he prayed three times for this cup to be removed. Not because he feared physical death by crucifixion, because he was bearing the sins of the world and bearing God's wrath. Paul says in Romans 5, 9, we are saved from God's wrath through Jesus. John says in 1 John 2, he, talking about Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The cross was a place of suffering for Jesus physically, which was brutal, but also spiritually. Not only was the cross a place of suffering, the cross was a place of shame. This was done publicly, in heavy places or he places of heavy traffic. Think about this. It would be like going to Walmart on Sunday mornings. It's just packed when people should be in church. They did this publicly to shame the man. They wanted to publicly humiliate him and your family. That's why the families always came out. You see Mary at the cross. They wanted to strip the man of all his dignity. This brought out the lowest of the lows in society who came out to watch a crucifixion. If you can imagine, the winos, the prostitutes, the Satan worshipers, the street people, Teenage thugs who wanted to make fun of you in your last days would come out and make fun of you. They would spit on you and throw things at you. All the while, many men would lose control of their bowels and literally use the bathroom all over themselves and their cross in front of everyone. So at the bottom of every cross, you'd have blood, sweat, excrement, all these things, men dying in shame in front of other people. All the while, people were taking bets on how long you would live. They gambled for Jesus' clothes. No disciples were there. You, it doesn't make you wonder why. Then they would pick you. They would leave you there for days. Vultures would come and pick at you, and some men would lose their body parts over a period of time, and dogs would eat those body parts. Dogs were always, scholars tell us, at a crucifixion. To add to the shame, they would always crucify men nude. The Roman custom was to crucify men nude. This shame of nakedness constitutes punishment after Adam had sinned. He understood his nakedness. It came with it a sense of feeling and guilt. Not only was Jesus crucified nude, but the bystanders taunted and mocked him. 
The word says they literally scoffed at him. They turned up their noses at him. The chief priests and the scribes said this, and it was in our text. Luke records it this way. He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he's a king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Mocking Jesus' deity. In verse 41, it says they mocked him. If you study, verse 41 says, Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders. The biblical word used to describe the verbal torment of Jesus are very strong. All the gospels say that our Lord was mocked. Think about this. The word for mocking in the Greek means acting like immature children who are making fun of each other. With the mocking of a Christ, it's nothing less than verbal violence, one man says. The crowd would talk about your body, laugh at your mama, say things like you're about to die, or if you would cry or whimper, they would make fun of you. What did Jesus say in return? Think about this. What did Jesus say in return? You're on your deathbed in front of your family. People mock who you are. They mock what you stand for, probably making fun of your body, the fact that you're dying, everything about you. You're nude in front of them. You can do nothing about it. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Is that not a good lesson for all of us? He was oppressed and afflicted. If Jesus could take verbal humiliation, mocking and toning, and not respond on his deathbed, can we not do the same? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears are silent, so he did not open his mouth. Peter says this, and this is why he says it in verse 44. The Bible says, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. They reviled him. Peter says this, when he was reviled, in 1 Peter 2, 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We do know that Jesus said this, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. If you study how it's written, it gives the idea that Jesus said this from the time they were nailing his hands to the cross. Over and over again, Father, forgive them. What does that mean? It means, Father, blot out their transgressions completely. From the moment he begins dying, he starts praying for those who are taunting him. What a man Jesus is. One scholar put it this way, no one is too wicked or too enslaved to sin for Jesus to reach him with his intercession of love and wash him with his precious blood. He found time to pray for his murderers on the cross, Love like this is a love that passes all understanding. Can you pray for your enemies? So the cross was a place of suffering. The cross was a place of shame. And the third thing it tells us here is that the cross is a place of salvation. Verse 51 says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What this means is this. The old way of coming to God was canceled. No more rituals, no more sacrifices, no more relying on a high priest, but you may come to God. Only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement could go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And there they sprinkled blood on behalf of the nation for their sins on the mercy seat on top of the Ark. It symbolized the fact that there was no access to God apart from blood and only one person one time a year could go. Christ is the great high priest and he did what no high priest could ever do. He threw the way to God open. And what he's saying is you can come to God at any time. At any time. Can you remember the first time you ever prayed? 
I was born again on October 30th, 1990. It was around 7.25 p.m. at about, about a mile exactly from this church. And I remember the person that led me to the Lord. He may be watching on Facebook, and I hope he is. Such a good man. He says, Jamie, when you get home tonight, at some point, pray. Pray. And I remember saying, I've never prayed. I don't even know how to pray. And he says, you can pray because God is your father. Talk to him like your father. And I remember that night. I don't know what time it was. I was all by myself at my house. And I got on my knees. I thought you had to. And I remember I started praying to God in Jesus' name. And I remember the awesome, overwhelming sense that I was talking to the God of the universe and that he was my father. Why could I do that? Because when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The writer of Hebrews says that we can come boldly. That means keep your head up when you come to him. He's your father. My children can come to me at any time with anything, and I'll listen. You can go to your father. Aren't you thankful you don't have to go to a priest? I don't even like going to the doctor. I'd never go to a priest. But you can go to God, your father, at any time. Look at verse 54, the Roman centurion. Think about this for a minute. This centurion means this man was over a hundred of Rome's best fighting soldiers. And after hearing what Jesus says, how he interacts with the people, and all the things that happened, he said this, truly this was the Son of God. What an amazing statement. One of the first people to be saved after the thief on the cross was a Roman centurion. Luke puts it this way. He began praising God. Stephen Davey, whom I love to hear preach, says this, the hallelujahs of the cross came first from the lips of a redeemed centurion. He came to faith under our Savior's cross. This soldier was the first to begin singing praises to God for the sacrifice and sufficiency of Christ. These Roman soldiers would actually become the first evangelists of the crucified Savior. They would declare not only his innocence and righteousness, but his deity. He says, truly, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. He goes on to say this, who started this tradition of praising Jesus at Calvary? Soldiers who had seen a lot of men die on crosses and a centurion who thought he had seen everything until he saw the king and believed in the Savior who was, is, and always shall be the Son of the living God. Jesus Christ came as a suffering lamb but will one day return as a sovereign king of kings and lord of lords and he shall reign and rule forever. And then the fourth thing in closing is this. Sadly, the cross was a place of separation. It is a historical fact that many, if not most, maybe all, of the religious leaders at that time never repented, were never forgiven, were hardened in their sin, and perished in their sins. The book of Acts tells us that these same Jewish leaders, with few exceptions, started persecuting the church. This is so important. You cannot look at the cross and remain neutral. Oftentimes in Alexander County, I've been saved since 1990, and I started witnessing in 1990, after the Lord saved me. Oftentimes in Alexander County, I'll share the gospel. Maybe I don't share it good enough, but people will say this. I don't need Jesus. My life is fine. I'm happy. I'm in good health. I make good money. I don't need religion, and I don't need Jesus. 
And here's my response to that. Yes, you do. You're guilty before God because you sinned against his moral law. You'll face him on judgment day. And on that day, if you don't repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in Christ, you'll be sentenced to hell for all eternity, and your family will as well if they follow your leadership. Friend, listen, I don't care what kind of car you drive. I don't care what kind of education. You think that impresses God? You think you're good enough to stand before a holy, righteous God one day? If Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, you'll stand before God one day and you'll be sentenced justly. R.C. Sproul put it this way, people aren't asking this question, how can I be reconciled to God? How can I escape the judgment of God? If anything has been lost from our culture, it is the idea that human beings are privately, personally, individually, ultimately, inevitably accountable to God for their lives and for their sins. Every person on the planet is privately, personally, individually, ultimately, inevitably accountable to God for their lives. Friends, Jesus didn't come to give you your best life now. He came to save you from what? From the wrath of God. In John 3, Jesus or John tells us this, that those who don't believe, the wrath of God abides on them. You can't remove that wrath. Only Jesus can. Paul said to the church at Rome, you're storing up wrath until the day of judgment. Why not accept Christ who bore God's wrath? Are you right with God? Think about this. One day you'll stand before our Lord and give an account of your life. You cannot pay your sin debt. You can't. The Bible says that our righteous acts, the best we do is like filthy rags before him. Leper's rags, dung splattered rags. You're not good enough. Your good deeds will never outweigh your bad deeds. And if they did, it wouldn't matter because James says if you've broken the law in one point, you're guilty of it all. You have no hope apart from Christ. You're guilty before God and you'll be sentenced accordingly. But Jesus Christ's death was substitutionary and vicarious. He died in your place and bore your sin. Personally and privately and publicly, he bore your sin. It was vicarious. He was not at fault. He did it for you. What is your response to the death of Christ on the cross? What is your response? Has there ever come a time in your life when you personally repented and placed your faith in Jesus? Jesus said this, repent and believe the gospel. When Paul and Silas were in prison and God sent the earthquake and they were released and the Philippian jailer started to kill himself. Paul basically says, and I'm paraphrasing, don't do that. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And the greatest theologian of our day said this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't tell him to pray a prayer. He said, believe on, trust in Jesus. The the Lord saved me, I trusted in Christ. Just like the centurion, truly this is Jesus. My only hope is Jesus. The only thing that can save me today is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What does the cross mean to you? What does the cross mean to you? Have you ever placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Believe on Christ, trust in Christ, cling to Christ. There's no other way. Jesus is the only way. Your only hope today is Jesus. When I stand before God one day, if he would ask this question, why should I let you in my heaven? I would say Jesus. He's the only hope that I have. 
It's not because I'm a preacher or a church member because I was baptized by immersion. It's because one day I placed my faith and trust in Christ. Because the Holy Spirit of God opened my blinded eyes and rose my spiritually dead self to life so that I could accept Christ. Today, what is your response to the cross? What is your response to the cross? God does not have grandchildren. You heard it a thousand times. He has children. Is God your father? Is God your father? Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ? What does the cross mean to me? It means salvation. It means to be saved, to be born again. To be saved for all eternity. To me, it means forgiveness. You can't forgive your sins. You can't remove the guilt that's in your life because of your sins. You can't do it. Only Jesus Christ can do that. The blood of Christ cleanses us. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. To me, it means new life. My life has been changed because of Jesus. I've told you this many times. You can reform yourself to a point. You can stop cussing, drinking, smoking, whatever. You can even go on a diet, whatever. But you cannot change your heart. You can't do it. Only Jesus can do that. You cannot change yourself. You cannot change your nature. The amazing thing to me about being born again was that God changed my nature. And to me, the cross means eternal life. This world as it is right now is not my home. And for me, better days are ahead regardless of what happens because of that cross and because of Jesus. Friends, that's why Paul would often say this, today is the day of salvation. Today, whether you're in your car watching online, what is your response to the cross? It has eternal ramifications. The most important decision you'll ever make in your life is the one that has the, the most consequences, the eternal consequences of trusting Christ. So what should we do today? We should trust Christ, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Trust Christ today. Trust Him today. Secondly, if you're born again, thank God for the cross. It's your only hope for salvation. And then thirdly, we should always tell others about the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It is the good news. And I'll close by saying this, friends, no one loves you like Jesus. No one. Just for a moment in your vehicles, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? And if you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, why don't you do that now? There's no magic prayer I can give you. I don't even remember what I prayed the night I was saved. I just knew that I was trusting in Christ for my salvation. It doesn't matter if you're 5 or 95. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. In Alexander County, sometimes we think just because you die, you go to heaven. You don't. Salvation is of the Lord. And then if you're a Christian today, right now, why don't you thank God whether you're watching online, you're in your vehicle, thank God for your salvation. Thank God for Jesus, for the sacrifice that he made. Thank God for him. Worship him. And then finally, and most importantly, make a commitment today to share this wonderful Christ with the lost and dying world. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to you in prayer today, we thank you, Lord. I'm in awe of the cross Lord, not just what you suffered physically, you suffered like few ever have, but Father, you bore my sin. You bore God's wrath in my place on the cross.
You knew no sin, but because of my sin, you became sin. Father, thank you for forgiveness that only you can give. Father, the guilt that comes with sin in our lives, Jesus, only you can forgive that. Father, thank you for forgiveness. Father, thank you for a new life. Father, I'm thankful that that day that, Lord, you saved me, the old man died. And, Lord, the new man began. Father, thank you for that. All that I am today, I thank you for it and praise you for it. And, Father, we thank you for eternal life, the greatest, one of the greatest gifts you could ever give us. Lord, I'm so thankful if any of us die today, Lord, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Lord, the days are just better for those that are born again. And, Father, my prayer is for Alexander County, anybody watching this online, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, trust in the Savior today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Kevin's going to come and give us some final instructions. We are so glad that all of you went through the effort on a Sunday morning to come out and do this. This isn't the most convenient thing, but your presence here and for those of you who are watching um, just shows how important our time is together. No matter what it looks like, God has called us together as a church body to care for one another, love one another, and this congregation has done an amazing job over the past couple of weeks. And just a reminder that this is not the church. This building behind me is not the church. You are the church. We are the church. No matter if we have a building or just a parking lot, we are the body of Christ. And I just thank you all for the effort that you're putting forth and the flexibility. Um, next week, if there's anything different, we will send out a message this week. We'll put it on Facebook as well. Um, but right now, we'll be, able, we'll be on a schedule next week similar to this at 1030 Worship. It is Easter Sunday, so we may have a few extra next week, but uh, we will let you know any details that may change. But we're going to dismiss today as we did last week, and I'll dismiss you by rows, um, give you instructions there. And if you're prepared to give and want to give on your way out, that's underneath, underneath the covered drop-off. I want to thank all of you that are giving online. Some of you have taken that step uh, out of convenience, and we're glad that we have that to offer. And thank you for your faithfulness in giving. Right now, we're going to let uh, row number one, you guys are going to go out first. And this week, what's different is row number three, which is behind the front row here. We're going to let them pull out first, so we got a little bit more room for number two to go out after uh, row number three dismisses. But thank you all for being here. Thank you for watching online, and we'll see you next week. Marvelous.